Today on Movie Wallers, we talk about Mulan, Tenet, Unfit, Greyhound, The 13th, Little Fires Everywhere, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, Killing Eve, Away, and much, much more. Hi, this is Joe. Hi, it's Rashmi. And yes, as well. Movie Wallers is your monthly dose of film reviews, movie news, and general banter in theatres, on DVD, online streaming, or in the back of an airplane. If you love the movies, this show is for you. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. Greetings. Yes, it's been a while since we saw you. Yes, we live in the time of coronavirus. We have been <laughs> living in the time of coronavirus for about half a year. And I did introduce the show as Monthly Dose because it's been a while since we podcasted. There's, it's kind of weird because we are watching stuff. Um, it feels like we're watching a lot of bingeable stuff. And mm-hmm. the movies are starting to get back into the world. So I guess we should talk about that at some point today as well. Because Rashmi and I have set foot into a live theater. Um, <laughs> for one of the movies that we were reviewing today. So um, we should maybe talk about that experience. But... Um, yeah, I feel like there's signs of slight life. Rashmi, you told me today that the Landmark Theatre is Yeah, in I just, um, I literally just read that the Landmarks are opening up on Wednesday. We are recording on a Sunday, so yeah. Is Landmark a national chain? I don't remember. I don't yes, know. Yeah. They oh, are. They are. Yes, they are. Okay. okay, so the ones here in San Diego are opening up on Wednesday, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. But we can talk about the going into a theatre when we yeah, we can, review yeah, for sure. that movie. And um, so we got, yeah, we've been watching things on streaming. We're, we're binging some various content. And I feel like there are signs of, of recovery in the world right now. I never quite know what to make of it myself because um, it feels like we're yo-yoing around from uh, open to closed, open to closed. But um, nonetheless, there's some semblance of normality coming back. Yeah, I have faith in science and I hope that even an imperfect vaccine is going to change things uh, in the months to come. So I'm staying very cautiously hopeful. Yes. I, too, am cautiously optimistic. <laughs> yes. So, lots of movie stuff to talk about. Yazdi, you sent me a provocative text a few days ago. Yes. The, um, really? Well, no, I, I'm being dramatic for, for podcasting effect. Um about the academy and their um, yes their decision to be more inclusive in terms of how films qualify for uh, consideration by the Oscars committee. So I don't know if you want to maybe recap what they what the the point that they were making, and and I know that you have read quite a lot about of different opinions about this. So you uh... yeah. So I think uh, the Academy has been struggling for the last several years in terms of getting more representation in movies. And it follows with the hashtag Oscar So White, where there were you know, a few years where there were absolutely no non-white acting nominations and so forth. So I think perhaps the most uh, uh, substantial change that is being proposed is the set of rules that the Academy just released, I think about 10 days ago. And it's already caught people on either side of a strong divide in terms of those who think 
that it's a good thing versus those who think that it's unnecessarily politicizing uh, a purely artistic venture such as cinema. And uh, just to get just to get our viewers uh, very quickly uh, familiarized with the rules, there are four categories: standard A, standard B, standard C, or, and standard D. Um, to qualify for the best film, the movie has to meet either standard A or B, and standard C or D. So one of each: A or B and C or D. A stands for ensuring on-screen representation. Um, and what that means is that a major character has to be non-white or the cast should have at least 30% women or 30% non-white. So if you have a cast of, I don't know, normally 20 people, then six of them can be women, they can be LGBTQ, they can be African-Americans, they can be people with disabilities, etc. Standard B is uh, diversity behind the camera. So again, it's saying that a film department head must be one of those categories or 30% of the crew has to be one of these people or just six crew members have to be non-white. Okay, six out of your, however big your crew member is. And yes, these now debate and discuss. Well, yes. are, are these blanket rules? Because I mean, you know, sure, uh, you know, if it's a work of fiction or something modern set in current times, but what if it's a historical period piece? Um, you know, those things become quite hard to adhere to if you're striving for, um, you know, um, perfection in terms of representing the way things were. Two words, David Copperfield. Remake now. Dev Patel, David Copperfield. But it's a fictional work, right? No, it's a fictional I mean, work. It's uh, historical. Yes, it's a period drama, but it's it's a fictional work. I mean, I'm thinking of something like I don't know. Um, the Madness of King George. That's no. They're, they're, again, that's another piece of fiction. No, but, kind of. But I'm thinking of, like my. I'm going to just say something really stupid. But Braveheart, set in the Scottish Highlands in the 1100 AD time period, where there were only ragged orange-haired Scots running around the place. So, <laughs> But none of us think it's a true creation of what that time looked no, no, like, no, but right? I'm just saying, would, it, would the movie be enhanced by having a demographic that re represents today's society versus uh, one of the, uh, its time. I, I, I don't think the movie would be enhanced at all. I mean, but it, in order to be considered by the Oscar uh, committee, so, it would have to meet those criteria. So. so there's been a lot of discussion about it in New York Times and The Hollywood Reporter and Vanity Fair and so forth. And just to clarify, it's A or B. So A is saying representation in front of the camera, but if you have a movie which is only three characters, all of whom happen to be, you know, sorority mates who are, all are white, that's fine. All you need to have is six, six cast members in your movie by standard B who are non-white. So it, it's A or B, it's not A and B. So you need to have some representation either you in mean front six of... six crew members? Six crew members in anything, in casting, in the, 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 the dolly person, the, you know, the, the costume person, whatever, anybody. So interestingly, it seems very sweeping because these are big changes, but both the New York Times and Vanity Fair have made the point that actually the last 15 years, every single movie nominated for best film would have qualified. Okay. And interesting that you have to bring up Braveheart because you have to go back all the way to Braveheart 
where it seems like that might be the first movie where they might not have met and only because there's no information available about the crew. I mean, it had a crew of, I don't know, 200, 300, maybe more, a thousand people, but there's just no information available how many of them were women, how many of them were, you know, non-Scottish, okay. etc. So I'm, I'm going to throw a marker down and I'm going to say, I think this is a fantastic rule. And unfortunately, unless you make sweeping rules like this, nothing will change. And so you have to be extreme in order to bring equity in the, in the workplace eventually. So I think it's fantastic. And I applaud the fact that if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. But I mean, don't forget the audience for many of these movies is not the Academy, right? So the, the non-inclusive movies that we're all concerned about, they're still going to get made. Of course they are. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that you fix anything, right? You know, sure, the the intention is is definitely one that should be applauded. I'm not saying it shouldn't, but I'm just wondering if this is the right way to go about trying to change an industry. But think about a, a, lot, of, a, a lot of people have brought up the issue that a movie like Dunkirk would have never met the criteria and it wouldn't have been nominated right. for yeah, Best Film. It would have, because Dunkirk had a crew of, you know, 300 people, many of whom were women. I mean, is it too much to ask that 30% of your crew be women or just six out of however many you have then, be women or non-white or whatever? So I think... What are we achieving with these rules then? I think what you... So this is my question to you. In our field, we all work in pharma. I can say with confidence that other than you, Joe, I haven't met a single other person who is dark skinned, you know, who, who, who is um, off African descent or off, you know, and, and, and I've had a lot of discussions with my manager. How come in my field, how come there are no black people in my clinical pharmacology group? And it's like, well, because there are no PhDs who seem to, there are no black people who seem to get PhDs. Well, why do black people don't get PhDs? Well, because not enough black people apply for PhDs. So you have to go to the very bottom of the ladder and change the rule there where you have access for people who are not getting access right now. So we are now actually trying to fund a scholarship where right at the admission stage, if you happen to be an underrepresented person, we are not saying you have better merit. We are just saying if you're economically not able to apply for something you want, we'll help you. So I think it is along those lines. If if somebody wants, you know, if, if there why are there not why is there not enough representation in editing or why is there not enough representation in cinematography i suspect because right at the bottom of the of the training they don't get the the thing so this is just encouraging them and by the way there's a standard c or d which is easy to meet but standard c says that you have to provide internships paid internships to women or people of color etc so I, like you, Rashmi, I think it's a very good idea. I think it sounds overly political. It sounds very pro-liberal. But I think, again, it's it's not going to change anything because the last 15 years of movies would all be eligible. And it's actually a pretty low bar, I think. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, again, if, if we're already there, you kind, I kind of wonder why, why bother implementing these rules with such fanfare. Uh, but, you know, again, I... I, I don't get me wrong. I'm I'm absolutely not against anything like this other than I always feel that with an award show, I want the art to represent the mm -hmm. art, right? I, I don't want in the field of sports for us to have mm -hmm. to have a certain demographic on a basketball team in order 
for that team to um yeah you know, I, I want to see the best you know the best 11 players i have i don't i, I don't watch basketball but i want to see the best team win the championship right i don't necessarily care of their um that that i don't i don't want their makeup to be prescribed by some well-intentioned but um ultimately self-defeating rule you know i i want as long as the opportunities are there for all participants to be able to get into the sport and that's where we have to put the energy right i don't want to say you know you would have won the championship with that team but you know there were too many you know there was no asian guy on there right you know i don't want to see that kind of um thing i want the art to speak for itself and address the inherent issues that are there with yeah but I, i think what these rules are saying is right at the time when people are allowed to train for that particular sport, that's where you're giving opportunity to people saying, we will give you internships or we will give you, you know, sports equipment if you don't have it. Then at the end, it's all based on merit. But I I I think think that's where we should put the focus, not necessarily say your movie doesn't qualify because of certain criteria. But anyway, it's kind of a circular argument. It's an interesting position and we'll see. We'll see how it ultimately impacts the movies. It's a proposed rule, right? It's not a, a... It's not a... Well, I mean, they they pass it off like a rule, but then remember, they also had passed off another rule and there was another, there was a huge backlash and then they kind of, uh, remember, they they were going to create a popular film category? Yes. Last year and then they kind of uh, walked back on it. So I think they're just, they're just testing out the waters right now. Yeah. No, I mean, interesting. What will be interesting is if there are any movies that don't meet those rules that are kind of in production right now, if they, you know, if they can fix them. Or oftentimes, I mean, you know, movies that we see at, you know, film festivals don't surface um, or don't get a kind of a release or consideration. So if any of them are sitting there, you know, they're quickly going through their HR files to make sure that they meet this yeah. and get them out before the rule kicks in. I don't know. It'd be interesting to, to kind of see how it all plays out. Anyway, interesting debate. Thank you for for raising that. I just got a call. Can I go? Okay. Well, that was uh, a good discussion. So I guess we should move into the main event, which is talking about movies for the podcast. Um some big ones this week it's been that funny year where everything got kicked out and pushed out and Mulan and Tenet were two movies that were kind of playing this weird game of chicken with their release date so Warners and Disney I think both had lots of dollars behind these movies and they were the big summer blockbusters and obviously with COVID the release dates get got pushed back and as I saw it, what seemed to be happening was every time Warner's pushed back Tenet, Disney pushed back Mulan. And mm-hmm. They were each trying to look. And then when Disney pushed back Mulan, then Warner's would move back Tenet. And they were each trying to get out behind the other one to see who would actually um, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. But also to see what would actually happen once the cinemas reopened. So, after what seemed like uh, half a dozen of these, you know, date shifts, uh, Disney opted to release Mulan on Disney Digital. So we should maybe start with Mulan, but it was kind of an interesting move that Disney played here. So um, Mulan was essentially added 
to the Disney Plus subscription service that they started um, within the last 12 months. I'm not exactly sure when it was uh, kicked off, but uh, they did it in a very unusual way. They added it as an exclusive for Disney Plus subscribers for a three-month period. So in December, every Disney Plus <laughs> subscriber will get access to the movie. But if you want to see it today, then you have to kick out 30 bucks, and then it will be added to your Disney Plus library. So it's a 30 bucks fee, but it's not for a one-off viewing It's a th- or like a streaming thing. It's a $30 fee that then adds it to your Disney Plus subscription uh, to watch as many times as you like. So it's kind of like an early access thing if you're willing to kick out the 30 bucks. And, you know, we've talked about this on previous podcasts. Um, $30 seems like a horrendous amount to have access to a streaming movie when there's so much competing content. But when viewed in the context of a movie ticket, particularly a movie like this, which was likely to be kind of a family movie where, you know, mom, dad, and two kids would go plus popcorn, you know, essentially it's, it's competing against what would have probably been like a hundred dollar expenditure for a family versus a $30. So there's many different ways of talking about this, but um, yeah. Yeah. I know, I know families who routinely go for movies with kids for them, 30 for them. It's all, this sounds like a very good deal. Two separate families told me that just their pre-concession cost is more than 30 bucks normally if they go to see a movie like an animated movie. So, yeah. So I think it, you know, for a very particular niche of movies, you know, it's not going to be too much to ask, I think. But of course, we'll have to see how the numbers fare eventually when Disney releases, if they ever will, you know, yeah. um, how much how much money they made. But it's also an event. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. the, the $30 always seems a little high in the home context because it's not a night out. And, you know, a night out or a day out is yeah is something that you don't get but anyway i guess the economics of it will come to pass over time rashmi do you want to intro the movie i do talk about it because all three of us have seen it now i do so um this is as you've said the remake of the original animation mulan so the story is when the emperor of china issues a decree that one man per family must serve in the imperial army to defend the country from northern invaders Hua Mulan, the eldest daughter of an honored warrior, steps in to take the place of her ailing father. Uh, masquerading as a man, Hua Jun, she's tested every step of the way and must harness her inner strength and embrace her true potential. It's a real girl power movie. It is an epic journey that will transform her into an honored warrior and earn her the respect of a grateful nation and a proud father. So this is PG-13. It's directed by Nick Nikki Caro. Uh, written by Rick Jaffa, Amanda Silva, Elizabeth Martin, Laura Hynek. Um, and it stars, um, I'm going to butcher their names, Yifei Lu, Donnie Yen, Jason Scott Lee, Yoson An, Lee Gong, and an, and an appearance by Jet Lee as the emperor. That didn't sound too butchered to it me at all. It wasn't so bad for Jason. Of course, Jason, we may have offended Jason everyone Scott in Lee. China. Yes. And this, we could talk a little bit about the, um, this one's been political too, right? Because uh, Yifei Lu's come under some, um, some, you know, strife for uh, saying that she's with the Hong Kong police. And so there's been all sorts of, you know, cancel, cancel Mulan type posts. But <laughs> this is after we had seen it and who knows what we would have done. 
Um, Yazdi, Joe, I think you've, I know Joe's seen the, the original animation. Yazdi, had you seen the original animation? Yes. Okay, so let's kick off then. So, Yazdi, why don't you tell us what you thought of this highly anticipated remake, live action, Mulan? Yeah, uh, uh, before I go into that, just to follow up on what you said, Mulan has been beaten up from every, every which way in that, um, you know, there's a very strong uh, sentiment against it in Hong Kong and Taiwan and a few other places because the lead actress, you know, at least on social media, came out very strongly in favor of the Hong Kong police. And then apparently the movie shot in a province which is known for... Um, causing a lot of human rights violations uh, in terms of oppression of minorities. So, again, people are saying that they should cancel Mulan or whatever, ban Mulan or boycott Mulan from that. So, um, you know, I think when when you are this big a deal in in, in the movie world, especially during the pandemic, then, you know, you you really have to face with a lot of other considerations that even other big-budget movies, I think, don't necessarily come under. Uh, my opinions about Mulan is um, I like the movie. I, I was very reluctant to watch it because I'd heard all along that it's just an absolute treat for the eyes. And I, I, I was waiting to watch it on the big screen. And having seen it on not the big screen, uh, I can see why people were saying that it's absolutely, absolutely a treat for the eyes. And I mean, there were, I counted at least four or five times where I, wished that I, I, I'd been watching this on the big screen. It's it's made for the big screen, the vistas and every kind of flora and fauna. There's the forests and then there is, you know, the tops of, uh, you know, the Asian palace and then there is the, the, the sand dunes and so forth. Um, I enjoyed the movie a lot, but I expected more from it. And um, especially coming from this director, I'm a big, big, big fan of Nikki Caro. She burst on the scene with directing a movie called Whale Rider a uh, long time ago, and I'm just a huge fan of Whale Rider. So um, we can talk more about it, but I was a little bit disappointed that the movie did not emotionally, you know, connect with me. Uh, it's grand. It's beautiful. The action pieces are nice. The colors just pop. But I, there was a, there was a connection missing, so um, it's enjoyable. But I think it could have been so much better. Joe. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to necessarily talk about the politics of it. I, I'm going to try and be objective in the sense of you know rating the movie for for what it is. But yeah, yes, I agree with the 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 big screen comment more than I expected to for a movie like this I mean when you know it, it's a Disney remake and any of the ones that we you know we've seen the Jungle Book and the Lion King and and the Aladdin and and you know may, maybe with the exception of, of the the Lion King um, either of them they, they all feel like they're designed to be you know watched and rewatched on DVD home release Disney home this movie, you're right. It this is a big screen experience that I'm really upset that we we didn't get a chance to see here. And and again, we've got a great setup at home. Um, in fact, you know, one of the things that we struggled with was, um, you know, the movie's got big sound as well, and so we were constantly we watched it in the middle of the day, um, and we you know we were just concerned about being good neighbors because our, our 
speaker <laughs> system is not on an adjoining wall and this movie has you know thunderous battle scenes and and hooves and all sorts i mean it literally shakes the house it shook the house and my dog freaked out yeah. my dog jumped out of her bed and ran to the terrace like so, twice yeah. so yes i think disney miscalculated here like of all the movies they they should have held their guns they should have held the release back as for the movie itself um i enjoyed it i mean it felt um you know it's a very familiar movie i think they made some artistic choices and differences between the um the animated version and the live action version and i think one of the things that I heard in one review, which, you know, it bothered me only by knowing, so I'm going to spoil it for everyone else by letting you all know, is this notion of chi and the fact that Mulan has a special ability with chi that makes her unique. Whereas the original movie was very much more about can a, can a girl, you know, make it in a man's world, you know, as, as, as an ordinary girl, you know, it's kind of has a message of equality as opposed to this movie, which almost, you know, I've heard the word superhero used. I don't believe that, but it certainly bestows some magical power on her that takes away from, you know, the, the gender sexism kind of, you know, the inherent sexism of the world in China at that time. And, and so, but I, I mean, I enjoyed the movie. It was, it was fun. I, don't know that I emotionally connected, connected with it deeply, but its final scenes packed a punch. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I felt I felt its big moments, I think, in the way that the director intended. So I liked it. Okay, so hands down, one of my favorite Disney movies ever is Mulan. And so I've been super excited to watch this um, live action version. And I was so excited that I made Joe buy Disney Plus on Friday and literally we watched it the first moment we could shut our computers down for work. Um, so, you know, look, it had a really high bar to live up to for me. And although I haven't necessarily hated any of the live action movies, uh, the remakes, I find it difficult to say that any of them have been better than the original animations. So that said, I think this was an okay movie that had a few great moments and great cinematography like the both of you have mentioned. For me, however, it totally lacked any joy, enchantment, and the comedy that the original brought. And that's not just because the great Eddie Murphy was missing as Mushu, but it was just very basic. And it almost felt like I was watching a very ethnic Chinese movie as opposed to something Disney had created for a global audience. So it felt much more basic than the original. And I just couldn't... Sure, I think it does get that basic essence of family and duty and... Um, but it just, it fell really shy for me. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think a lot of people have mentioned that the film completely does away it's a, it's it's a choice they completely do away with it's a, the original is a, is a musical it's, it's a musical nice and it's got great songs it's got great songs and a lot of those songs help you understand the characters exactly like a great song where she is going through training you know yeah. with, with, with her group of people it's yes we are men that one right yes exactly. and so they've done away with the music they've done away with the sidekick 
And so you take a 90-minute uh, animated movie, you remove all the musicals, you remove all the sidekick, and somehow you make an, uh, a live-action movie, which is... Almost two hours, two hours yeah. So then you're filling it up with a lot of other stuff. And I, I think my biggest... So I agree with you is that it's okay if you make a choice, but then you really need to ground your movie. You re- I mean, you really need to build that connection. And I hate to say this, and I... I, I I don't like to point fingers, but I really think a lot of this rests on the shoulders of the lead actor. And Yifei Lu, maybe maybe their their agreement or their decision was to not overplay it, to not make it melodramatic, but there is a line between being subtle and being not acting at all. I mean, her face was a clean slate and these life-changing, horrifying things were happening and I did nothing registered on the face, you know, and I know this director is capable of doing that because I have to just watch the first half hour of Whale Rider and I start crying and that's the first... Or that you know, great movie we watched, McFarland, remember about The Runners? Yes. Yeah, that was that a great movie that we all loved. So this is a director who's really able to connect with the audience and I don't know if it was just the fear of doing this large-scale Disney adaptation, but she kind of lost... I think the hum- the hum- the human connection in the movie. Yeah, and instead I think going back to what Joe was saying about this whole issue of Mulan having chi or this special power and now we've got a another female role which again, you know, you could say well it's two female protagonists mm-hmm. but then the other one is a witch because she's also got special powers. So it's it's a very strange choice to make to change the movie that much. And you're absolutely right, Yazdi, that much of the dialogue of the movie, the exposition is done through the songs. And so now, not only have you taken away the songs, you've kind of taken away the exposition and all you're left with is these epic battle scenes, which are great, right? They are great, but they don't really move the story forward at all. The insertion of that additional character, thank you for reminding me about that. That was almost forgettable. And I think, you know, if you're going to make a choice like that, she needs to almost steal the show. And I, I felt like she, she didn't. I don't know that that added a whole lot to me other than, I guess, explaining the way that the that particular world at that particular time viewed women that were strong, right? I mean, women clearly in the Chinese... Um, the time of China that in which the movie is set were had a specific role and and any any woman that came out as strong and I guess in this case magical was considered to be some sort of sorceress and she was actually a sorceress so yeah I'm not sure yeah. what point I'm making there. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think they're trying to hit on a lot of points about how women with um, not to get political, but how women with special powers or with a lot of strength. Um, scared people and therefore they were labeled as witches or sorceresses or whatever and I, I, I mean it's speaking to the uh, gender-based inequality way back when I mean the whole Mulan story rests on her becoming a guy you know to get into battle because there's no place for a woman there and so forth but I think it's it's kind of very somber and very um, dirge-like I mean I you know and I, I think the other piece also is that there's a great action scene right at the beginning where little baby Mulan is being, you know, she's trying to catch a chicken. And that's so creative and so wonderfully done. But that inventiveness, you know, the battles, the battle scenes get more and more epic, but they're not clever. And I'm, you know, I mean, this is supposed to be inspired by 
the wuxia, you know, wuxia, the, the martial arts. Like, I'm thinking of something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where every scene took my breath away. And I wish they had injected some of that, that loveliness and that creativity of the martial arts as well. But, I mean, again, you know, maybe, maybe we are adults here, you know, splitting hairs over a movie that little kids are just going to completely embrace and love. And um, it's good that there is a live action, you know, version of the movie that little girls can look up to. So, I'm, I mean, it's enjoyable. I just think it could have been so much more. Yeah, that sounds like a summing up. Yes, why don't you score? Yeah, to me, I hate to sound so harsh, but it sounded like a sandwich with nothing between the bread. Wow. Um, six out of ten. It's enjoyable. The bread's delicious and done, made with, baked with a lot of care. But I need something between the bread slices. It's a great <laughs> analogy. Go. Yeah, I'm somewhere in between a six or a seven. I'll give it a seven um, because I think it, it, it does have some some breathtakingly beautiful <laughs> shots in the movie. And, and overall, I mean, maybe it was because the expectations I had of this were, were, gonna, were, were actually quite low. Um, I I don't necessarily agree with disney's you know decision to remake all of these movies as live action so having seen you know more than i think maybe cinderella worked for me the kenneth branner directed one maybe jungle book worked for me Uh, but the others have all been meh and i I was really worried this was gonna be a meh and it was more than a meh so for that i gave i'm I'm gonna go with seven meh len (laughs) <laughs> oh wow six out of ten <laughs> i i really really think a better lead actor would have just completely elevated this i don't you know, even somebody... know if it's the lead actor though yazdi because i just felt like the the things that made mulan so amazing the fact that she's an ordinary girl who's trying mm-hmm. to find her own way who is unable to live by the rules that bind her um, saving her father she's saving her father i mean it just it should have been so much better yeah and it didn't have any of that kind of mystical mythological um depth that mulan brought right like this whole thing of ancestors and our history and where we come from and where we go back to. Um, and then yeah. instead she had like a crappy little sister. What was that about? Who was scared of spiders? I mean, it just, <laughs> it failed. It failed for me. I mean, I'm giving it a six because I think it's beautiful to look at. Um, yeah. And I think it's a lot of effort to go to. Um, but watch the original. Yeah, that sister thing almost made me think of Hunger Games, you know, where how she kind of steps forward and says, I pick, pick me, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, the one thing I did like about the movie is it gives an opportunity for a lot of uh, very good Asian actors to be in a, in a main Sure, movie, like sure. Tony it and sure. Um, the guy who played the father. It will well the qualify favorite. for the Oscar best movie, although it's totally not no. the best movie. No, it's not. Yeah, it's not. So the father, the father from the farewell was the father year, and I thought yeah. it was very good. Yeah. yeah. So the thirty question is now or December? December. Yeah, I'm December. hearing December. December. Unless you have kids less than fourteen years of age. No, December. Is- Buy them an ice cream and tell them they'll see it in December. 
Really? <laughs> Buy them $10 worth of candy and be That's, done with it. Yeah. Get them some ice cream instead. That's what I said, yeah. Yeah, okay. candy, yeah. yeah. So on to the one that Joe has been waiting for then. Yes. My God, Joe, this is an event. It Joe is an event. It's such an event that I've been we waiting actually since... went to the cinema. So yeah. let's talk about that. I mean, um, so the cinemas here in San Diego have been closed as they have been in many parts of the country due to the pandemic. And then um, I think just in the early part of September, they announced that they were going to open the movie and open uh, rather some AMC theaters. Rashmi and I are, be, uh, are members of the AMC sub Stubbs subscription service, which is, you know, like 20 bucks and see as many movies as you want. So um, they... Did you have to keep your subscription going through the pandemic? No, they, they actually, they suspended it for us. So okay, they said, good. as soon as they closed, they said, we'll put your thing on suspension. And then when we reopen, you can choose when to reactivate it. So um, I went in and I thought I may as well reactivate it. And now that I think about it, perhaps, you know, our experience in the cinema is kind of mixed. I mean, for me, I've spoken about this on many a podcast. It is, for me, the definitive way to watch a movie. Um, I know this director, Christopher Nolan, makes his movies to be seen that way, but I like to see even the small movies in that very isolating, focused environment. So for me, it was like a trip home. And the moment we went through the doors... Ticket issues notwithstanding, but that's for another day. Um, and entered the theater, I've, I felt like I was in my happy place again as far as movie oh. watching was concerned. And I really, I've, I've, I've said it many times, I miss the theater experience um, because I just don't get that level of um, immersion in a movie, the movie any other way. So, you know, there's cats and weather and, you know, distractions at home um that you just don't get there so i was really happy to be there but with it being during a pandemic there was a certain unease that both of us felt because they do socially distance the movie uh theater they block out seats in between you can't book adjacent seats to somebody else they they have like two seats between each um each, between each purchase um, you're supposed to wear your mask while you're in the theater, except when eating popcorn. But, you know, when you have, you know, the ridiculous jumbo popcorn bucket, you know, <laughs> necessarily means that people are munching all the way through the movie. And movies, movie theaters configured right now don't have six feet of distancing. Like when you have to walk along your row to get to your seat, you have to come into contact with other people. So there was an ickiness about that. How did you feel, Rashmi? Yeah, um, I liked the fact that there was um, those uh, wipes, the Clorox wipes outside each um, cinema. And I was glad that we were the very first people going in. So I had some confidence that there weren't many germs there already or COVID virus particles. Um I did find it, it, it was lovely to be in a cinema again. I absolutely agree with you that, you know, that feeling you get with the high ceiling and the big screen and the sound and the color. And we went to the LIMAX um, screen. So the sound was amazing. The, the scenes itself is amazing. Having oh, watched. This was, 
And this was Edwards, Mira Mesa? Or? Uh, no. Mission Valley. AMC Mission, AMC Valley, Mission Valley has an IMAX okay. certified theater. Now, okay. it's not actually an IMAX digital, which we have in Edwards. So it doesn't have the IMAX aspect ratio. So you know how the IMAX, full IMAX image sure. is almost square? Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have that. But it's an IMAX certified theater, which means that it has, you know, the, the, the head pounding sound and the, the brightness of the, of the visuals. But, sure. um, you know, the, the true IMAX experience is obtained on print, which is very few cinemas. The local IMAX experience is in those IMAX digital theaters where you get the IMAX brightness and image and the aspect ratio. And then there's a third tier of IMAX licensed theaters that are... Which Joe calls Limax. Essentially just a money grab. Um, you know, they're, yes, they're, they're probably equipped with, you know, a, a certain Larger screen. power of sound and that kind of yeah. thing. But they're, they're, not, they're not IMAX. So that was unfortunately the only way I could access the movie. And so, yeah, I, I did take a bunch load of those Clorox wipes in and wipe down the whole seat anyway again. So I agree with Joe. Look, I found it fairly uncomfortable to wear my mask. Um, and, and struggled a little bit um, mm. just with wearing a mask for that long. Um, and also, remember, I wear glasses for watching a film, and so my glasses would steam up, and then oh, I'd have yeah. to, like, you know, make air vents. Anyway, <laughs> it was very nice to watch it in the cinema. It did still feel a little icky, and so we came out, and Joe was like, well, you know, we have to decide now. Are we going to cancel the AMC, you know, what's it called? Stubs, yeah. Stubs, because, you know, in order for a stubs to be efficient, you need to watch at least three movies a month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say this. I would say, this is what I said to Joe, I'd like to check out one more AMC theater to see if it's any better because the other one was a little bit icky and it's older. Um, I would probably pause the AMC stubs because I can't see us watching three movies a month. Um I think something like Tenet, however, totally worth the risk. See, Let, let's I, start with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm just on the brink. I'm not comfortable enough to go. Yeah. But if I had to grow, I would break, I would pop my cherry by going to like AMC La Jolla, even though it yes. doesn't have IMAX, it has the stadium seating, so people are further away. Yes. So, or, you know, I, I mean, I've been trying to watch Tenet. Um, there are two cinemas in... Um, San Diego at the drive-in where they're showing it and they're completely booked. Right. Uh, well, wait till you hear Kenya. our wait yeah, till yeah, you hear our review before you okay. <laughs> okay. drive fast or faster to the okay. theater. So, Joe, well, who's going to introduce the movie? Oh, oh yes, he's going to introduce the movie. Yes. So, Does it need introduction? Yes, it needs introduction. <laughs> so, I think it needs cliff notes. Okay, let's wait. So, Christopher Nolan who needs no introduction, but we'll introduce him anyways. He's the director of such uh, incredible movies over the years as Dunkirk, Interstellar, The Dark Knight Rises, Inception, uh, The Prestige, Batman Begins, Insomnia, Memento. So he has probably one of the most tonied uh, careers right now. I mean, he, along with maybe uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, and David Fincher are the, are the directors who will open movies just based on their name alone. So any 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 new movie that Christopher Nolan makes is always uh, cause for much excitement. And Especially this is by Joe. 
especially by Joyous. And this is uh, this is Nolan's first movie, and I think it was you know after making Dunkirk, which was. Uh, you know, I just loved it. It might be one of my favorite uh, Nolan movies. He's kind of gone back into the more hardcore entertainment kind of arena. And so it was, you know, it was hailed as, you know, his version of Bond along with time travel. So the IMDb summary says as follows, that armed with only one word, tenet, and fighting for the survival of the entire world, a protagonist journeys through a twilight world of international espionage, on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. Uh, we only and only have Christopher Nolan to blame because he's the only director and the only director for this. Uh, he doesn't have, uh, he usually has uh, co-writing credit, but in this one, it's just him. And it's got an incredible cast. Uh, John David Washington, uh, the son of Denzel. Um, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, who we like so much. Dimple Kapadia, who I grew up with and who I absolutely adore. Uh, the Indians, Indian um, actress of much note, Michael Caine, Kenneth Branagh, uh, Martin Donovan, and Aaron Taylor-Johnson round off the cast. So this movie, uh, pretty much like you've mentioned before, Joe, um, all of Hollywood was kind of hoping that this movie would kind of bring them through on the other side. And is it worth walking that line with this movie to the other side? Russia? So, so it it's making me laugh, right? Because, you know, Joe and I are married and we, we, we've lived together for many, many years and we generally know each other fairly well, right? And I still say I marvel at the fact that we still, we do movie wallers and we cannot talk about movies I know. before we review them, right? So... We're laughing because I'm laughing at what Joe might say about this. Okay, Tenet. Look, I love all movies that do interesting things with time, whether it be sequencing or travel. And so once I saw the trailers, you know, coming out, I have to say, much as I hid it, Joe, I was pretty excited about Tenet as well. And not only because it's a time-related movie, but also because I love, I love John David Washington. Mm -hmm. um so here's the thing even though it's time related it's so hard to understand what's actually going on i don't actually know what i watched but i don't think it matters because just the scenes as they play out they're very enjoyable and they're well filmed and my God, I could watch john david washington make a washing machine commercial as <laughs> joe says about um Danny Boyle, um, I think that would be entertaining and a pleasure to watch. So the fact that he is such a great protagonist and this is thrilling, even though you don't know what what it's about, um, it it's it's actually very enjoyable. It's very, very enjoyable. It's very entertaining. And, you know, there are times when I thought it reminded me a little bit, and this is going to be a weird reference if you haven't watched it, and I wonder if you'll get it, a little bit of The Prisoner of, As the Prisoner Azkaban. of Azkaban. Uh, there's a time travel um, mechanism in that movie, and it reminds me of that mechanism. So yeah. what, some things weren't quite a surprise because I'd kind of seen them in Azkaban. Um, and Dimple Kapadia Yazdi is great. She's really so good in this movie i thought but it's like watching my auntie on screen 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and Robert Pattinson, really good. And Elizabeth Debicki, really, really good. I didn't like Kenneth Branagh as the Russian. I was like, really, we're doing this again? Because he was just in that last movie with um, Chris Pine, where he played almost the same character. So yeah. all in all, look, I don't know what I watched. I can't tell you the story. I can't tell you if it turned out good or bad. But it was really entertaining. <laughs> Do you think a second viewing would help or not? No, but who cares? I'd watch it again. <laughs> okay, Joe, tell us how. Okay, great it come is. on. This is what we're we're really listening for. I, I'm not even sure how to follow all of that. Um, so, I, I've got to start by saying, I mean, Tenet is a palindrome, and <laughs> there's been a few clues here and there that the movie has, you know, forward time, reverse time. The trailer talks about the forward time, reverse time. So. When you remember that the title of the movie is a palindrome and then you kind of start to look at the movie as a whole as having this palindrome type structure, uh, knowing that and thinking about that as I walked into the movie was a great help. So I'm, all I'm going to say is, you know, I don't want it, to, it's very hard actually to spoil this movie because, <laughs> no, because it, it's so technically crafted and it's a real puzzle box. I think the one thing that I like about Nolan movies is that... Um, He's always, and he said this, he's, he said, I, unlike many, you know, Hollywood directors and Hollywood studios, he puts faith in the fact that we as an audience have extraordinary intelligence. We can, we can deal with complex issues that are given to us, complex information. And he trusts that as an audience, if it's done right, we can keep up. This is where he's pushing that to breaking point. And I'll have to admit that by act three of the movie, I was really struggling to keep all of the different threads together because it gets very complex. It's like a PhD thesis of a script. And there's a wonderful post on Twitter by somebody who's actually gone and drawn out all of the different timelines of all of the different people and characters <laughs> who go back and forth. And when I saw that, it started to have certain moments click into place. But in the in the moment in the movie, even though I was thrilled beyond thrilled because Nolan has that, you know, he he really understands big cinema. You know, there's there's a seven forty seven crashed into a building, and he does everything in camera, so you marvel at the spectacle of it because you know it's not CG, it's not visual effects. They 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 took you know a plane and crashed it into a building. You know, they have um, explosions and battle scenes and and internet. You know, they go around the world. They're in Mumbai. They're in in the, they're in Italy. They're in, I mean, it has all these, you know, there's a scene. A all the places scene in, we were on vacation at <laughs> that we just missed him. So it's, it's a thriller of a movie. And, I, you know, John David Washington, I think he's so deadpan in this. And I think it's by design. Like he's constantly referred in the movie almost. Again, this is why I talk about the PhD thesis nature of it. He, he's referred to as the protagonist, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't have a character name. As far as I could tell. Correct. So it's almost playing with this notion that this is a, a, a new construct. So it's a very difficult movie to love in the moment because the storytelling for me by the end of the movie was was opaque. It didn't quite click together. And I never had that moment of feeling like a genius when I started to see the moral behind The, the Dark Knight or when the timelines converge in, in Dunkirk. 
or, or when or inter- like in the sixth sense when you realize he's dead yeah there's no big payoff or in interstellar yeah. when you you kind of recognize the connection between the beginning and the end. i didn't or have, you don't i didn't have that movie because frankly yeah, or, you don't. <laughs> or you haven't still frankly i was lost his his inherent faith in having the audience keep up with him it was you know you you need you need a level of intelligence and order of magnitude above where i currently sit today so not my favorite nolan movie but that's like saying it's not my favorite ice cream bar i mean you know it was fantastic so let's ask the question that yasdi asked me if do you think on second viewing it will make a difference i i think it will and i think this movie demands second viewing because again I mean, if you if you know that it's palindromic in structure, which I think everyone should know that going in, <laughs> then you understand that it's not just a straight palindrome, right? There are multiple layers to it, like Inception, where you have to kind of really think and you know understand the way that things start to click together. So a second viewing will be a completely different experience. I guarantee it. Yeah, but is it? will will you get more clues the second time around or it's going to be just as impenetrable plot wise as the no, second time no you will you'll definitely you get you'll okay. definitely get get clues for sure the second time around you'll be watching for them as well right because okay. you know what to expect it does that thing that time travel movies do which is there's there's repetition in it mm-hmm. and when you see the scenes again in with now a new piece of information yes then you right. view the okay. scene differently but it it it's so breathlessly, relentlessly, um, entertaining, you know, forceful. No, about the way that it demands that you put those pieces together in real time. And like I say, this is like three D math, right? It's trying to like get you to figure this stuff out on multiple layers because the Robert Pattinson character, for example, you know, he he's he's bouncing around, and there's a again, it's in the trailer, but there's a car crash scene, which is a a, a pivotal moment in the the time shifting aspect, right? And the way that the car crash scene, scene you know, I, I would love to see that again, knowing what I know yeah. at the end of the movie. But again, you know, it, it's a it's a real puzzle when you first see it, but then you see it again, and there's context. And so it, it's all of that kind of stuff. But you know, again, I I don't want to spoil it. I don't know that I could spoil it because I didn't yeah, understand it if- enough to spoil it. But <laughs> it's it's. You know, Inception is... is I was going to say, it feels like the love child of Memento meets Inception. Sure, yeah. There's, there's, there's right? something there's to be said about that. There's aspects of Memento in it, and there's aspects of Inception. It, it's definitely derivative of those. And The Prisoner of Azkaban, which again, <laughs> it sounds weird, and you're, you haven't watched enough of Harry Potter, Joe, to, to understand that. But there's it, the way it plays with time... And how people have control of time, which you don't realize at the beginning. Um, it, it's look, it's very thrilling. It really is James Bond espionage set set to time travel in some ways. Uh, it, it's it's very good filmmaking. Yeah, I've tried not to read any of the reviews, and I think I've been successful. But I I do read Twitter feeds and so forth, and the two complaints I've heard is. One, that it's too complicated and there's a lot of exposition where somebody comes up and explains, this is the quark and now the neutron is gone here or whatever, something very highly technical. And then the other complaint I've heard, which I think is the most common complaint I've seen on Twitter about Tenet, is that um, like he does in other movies, Christopher Nolan intentionally has so messed up the sound design where the where the background is so bombastic 
that it comes at, at the cost of not actually hearing what what the dialogue that the characters have to say. And it really is frustrating a lot of people. And I, I've seen that in some of his other movies, but here apparently people are really pissed off about it. Yeah, I had actually heard that same thing. I'd read the same thing, Yazdi, mm-hmm. and um, I was really worried going in because I think as I get older, my hearing is going bad anyway. Um, I think Joe thinks it's because of years of using a hairdryer, but I think it's just aging. So... Um, I was really glad that we watched it in the IMAX because the sound was beautiful. I was really worried about um, not hearing the the sound, but I don't think it will help you anyway. No, no, no. What what, what I'll say to that, Rashmi, though, is... uh, (laughs) This is a movie that demands your attention. And (laughs) I do agree with those comments that the sound mixing here is a little off. And I don't know the reason of it. I mean, you know, again, Nolan Nolan really likes to have these cinematic theater experiences. So yeah. the music pounds. And I missed I missed Hans Zimmer, by the way, but um the, the soundtrack is still a very pounding, dramatic, you know, forceful cinematic, you know, no no cellos were tortured. It was all synthesizers this time, but, <laughs> yeah. but they, they had the living daylights kicked out of them throughout the entire movie by um I forget the name of the, the Ludwig Goranson. Thank you very much. Um but the sound, the dialogue was hard to understand. And for a movie that demands that you pay as much attention to this, a missed line of dialogue here and there makes you frustrated as a viewer because you're like, did I miss some information that would have helped me put some context on what's now happening? And I feel like I did. And that's why I feel like, and maybe it's intentional because I feel like the movie demands this second viewing, right? This isn't a movie that you can watch once and go, oh, that was, that was fun. You don't understand it, I think. Uh, until uh, I hope until the second time around, I felt it's it's as intense as Fury Road. So if you watched Mad yeah. Max Fury Road, yeah, the yeah, way yeah. that that movie just just beats you with beats you. this right. assumption that you intimately know its world, and Fury Road is a movie that I I didn't like on my initial watch. Yet I knew I there was something about it that I liked. And I went and bought the damn thing on Blu-ray because I knew there was something about it that I liked, even though I think my review of it was quite negative. Um, And then I watched it and I've watched it and I've watched it and I've watched it. And every time I see the movie, I catch some little details, some line of dialogue, some exposition, some explanation. I watch it with subtitles and I get even more because this is the same kind of thing. This movie demands that you know what's what's happening in every scene and and it's frustrating to miss it. Yeah, so this is interesting. Well, that same article that talked about the sound the sound mixing being bad actually stated that Nolan, and I don't know if this is true, but it said that Nolan said that he doesn't care that you hear the dialogue. He thinks that we can get it from the facial expressions and the context within which something is being said and the tone in which it's being said. So it's not the words that are important. I think I felt much more relaxed going into that movie knowing that. Mm. I think, Joe, had I not read that before, and I wasn't going to share it with you, obviously, because I know you didn't want to hear anything about it. In fact, I think I said to you, are you reading anything before you go in? And you're like, no, I'm not watching or reading anything. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just keep that to myself then. Um so I, I wasn't as frustrated because I just let it wash over me. I think you've got to go in there with this movie and let it kind of yeah. wash over you. But do not be thinking about what you're going to eat when you leave the cinema or did I leave the washing machine on or did I close the windows? Like you have to be in the 100% moment. brain power, yes. Completely, <laughs> completely. Okay. Um, and and I, have, I have no doubt that I don't think it's a mistake at all. I mean, everything Nolan does is 
100% premeditated. So he's definitely going for something. It's just annoying people. But yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I have to check it out myself. It's not as bad as watching Bane for two and a half hours. It's not like... Yeah. <laughs> it's not that. It's not that at all. Okay. Or close, maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, okay. it's not. It's... So you haven't dissuaded me completely. I might go this evening after all. We'll see. Yeah. At the drive. Uh, look, I, I can yeah. sum this up. Yes. Um, the last time I reviewed this movie, I gave it an eight. Oh, very nice. <laughs> eight is pretty good. I thought you. I thought it would be lower. <laughs> no, it's really enjoyable. And again, look, I am a big fan of John David Washington, and he is delightful to watch in this role. I wish actually John David Washington would be considered as the next James Bond. He would be delightful. Maybe he will. I hope so. And. You know, I mean, I'm I am the 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 Nolan sycophant here, so you know, whatever rating I give to this, you have to take with a, a Remove very three. large, well, with a very large <laughs> dose of salt, because frankly, I'm not objective when it I comes to this. I give it twenty-seven. Director. This, so this, right? <laughs> that's why it's twenty-seven out of ten. This for me is what cinema is about, and it's it's not trying to be objective. No, no, I'm I'm getting there. Okay. So, so this this kind of thing for me is what cinema is about, right? It's it's this kind of experience that you can't have with any other medium. It's um, it's not a especially emotional movie. It's a very very technical movie. Like these characters, in many ways, they they're not they're not relatable. You don't get to know them. You don't get to hear about their backstories. You don't <laughs> necessarily get to care for them in a way that you might in in many other types of things. This is very much about the movie's construct. And it, even like the emotional core of Inception with, you know, Leo DiCaprio and the wife character and that, that this doesn't even have that, right? I mean, the protagonist is the protagonist. It's a character going through a sequence in time. It's about the mission. So it's I a, would say it's, it's about the mission, so right? It, it, it's, it's, yes, you might find it a little cold and dispassionate and I would totally get that. But for me, this is, this is what, kind of gives me goosebumps it gives me giddily high so um, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 but I'm pretty sure that when I watch it for the third time that's going to go up to a 10 because I think when I finally understand it when I can sit here and explain it to people and understand it and gleefully kind of um, appreciate just how clever it was to do the reversal and the reversal and the palindrome and the palindrome and the time shift and the time shift and the forward and the backwards and just how carefully crafted it is because nothing is accidental i think i'll appreciate it even more so nine out of ten for now okay okay i i mean so far nobody's come out and said like you know that it's genius or that it's like you know it's like, you know, people were saying, I mean, and I, I can see when people say prestige, the prestige is genius or inception is genius or memento definitely is genius, but I'm not hearing that. So I, I yeah. don't know if it's just because the movie has gotten the better of audiences because it's so complicated that it's There's, true. there's a storytelling problem for sure. Right. For sure. Yeah. Yes. They, I mean, I, as, as the most ardent Nolan fan, I, I can't, I can't defend the opacity of the storytelling in, Especially by the time you get to the battle scenes and, uh, the, you know, there's so much going on in Act 3 
that mm. your head is literally spinning. There's people in blue costumes and red costumes, and they're all doing <laughs> a certain thing a certain way. And our main characters are, are, are disappearing and reappearing and going forwards in times and backwards in times. It's like, what the actual f is going on here? Yeah. You know what? I, I'll give you a hint, though, and I don't know if this is true, but I think it may be the case, is you'll hear the music reverse when we're in a different part of the palindrome. Did you notice that, Joe? Nope. Okay, so there's the, the music, the heavy synthesizers that you were talking about. At so some points in time, they play backwards. There's like, like that. Not quite like that, but <laughs> listen for the music changes. Yes. All right. Yes. Okay. It might help. I think once we all get to deconstruct it, It'll only grow in our esteem. But but again, I want to get across the fact that even though you don't, don't know what's to. going on, it's still really entertaining. It's an amazing piece of filmmaking. Yeah. Regardless. Okay. And I, look, I've I've discussed Inception with people that saw a completely different movie to me, and they still had a blast of a time. And I think this is one of those too. So. Yeah. Okay, moving okay. on. So the next movie to talk about here is the movie Unfit. And I'm going to quickly introduce this because I'm the one of the three of us that hasn't seen it. Well, because you said you know what the ending is. <laughs> so it's, the movie's called Hashtag Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. And when I say I knew the ending of it, look, I'm at the point in, in my, my political life here in the US where things are so divided and people are divided and... Society is divided and I'm not on social media anymore because of it. And so um, to see a movie called Unfit, and I'm uh, for the record here, this is a podcast, it's going out on the internet. I am no fan of Donald Trump. So, But do I need to see you know, a two-hour documentary essentially explaining that he's unfit? Because it's not going to change my vote. <laughs> I'm certainly not going to vote differently. So that's why I abstain from this. The politics and my blood pressure uh, are essentially, um, I, I need to separate them and, and have a calmer life. So that, that's why I do it. But nonetheless, the movie's called Hashtag Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. And the description of the movie goes as follows. Is Donald Trump fit to hold the office of President of the United States? Spoiler, no. Hashtag Unfit. Opens hashtag unfit presents an eye-opening analysis of the behavior, psyche, condition, and stability of Donald Trump. It takes a sociological look at the electorate that chose him and the collective effect that he is having on our culture and institutions. During the 2016 campaign, mental health professionals felt policy banned from speaking publicly. Now, after years of observation, for the first time ever, they have decided that enough is enough. The movie is a documentary, and it's directed by Dan Partland. Um, it's done very well here on, on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's showing a, a very positive 84%. So um, what did the two of you think of hashtag unfit? So I, I, I'll go first. Um, I, I agree with you that we are so politically divided as a country right now. I don't think somebody who is an ardent Trump supporter is even going to be watching this movie because they're just going to think of it as propaganda. Um, and I don't blame them because I would not watch uh, a documentary which said how great Donald Trump was either. So I think we are all in our little corners. I think it's still, I mean, as much as, you know, 
unlike you, I, I think I'm even more outraged and enraged, uh, Joe, about you know the state of our presidency and how much, within a period of four years, whatever it is that America stood for in the world has has really dropped more than a few notches, and it's it's because of Donald Trump. But I think what I really liked about the movie, and I think why people should still give it a try, is because there is an objectiveness about the movie. I mean, I think um, we all think he's a con man. We all think he's crazy, etc., etc. But I think when the head of this association, which uh, which is, you know, he's he's the psychologist of psychologists, and if he um, this is an organization which is being created specifically to warn people. Uh, about individuals in, in public and civil life uh, who could be potentially harmful when every single person within that group um, gives you cold clinical facts and explains why this person meets the formal scientific definition of malignant uh, narcissism. I think that's helpful because I think we all come at this with so much baggage when it comes to Donald Trump that if somebody just puts aside all that baggage and just starts from the basics of, you know, in a psychological sense, what is a sociopath? What characteristics does a sociopath have to have to exhibit? And objectively, does this person meet that? What characteristics does a, you know, a, a malignant narcissist have to do? And I think I think the movie is very clear-eyed and very objective about that. And you know, it has some pretty big names who are speaking here: George Conway's here. Michael Nance, who's the senior intelligence officer, um, speaks a lot. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci is a lot. And I think um, one thing that the movie kind of does not make up its mind about is whether, um, you know, whether the people who uh, who support Trump are to blame or not. In other words, um, in, in 2016, did we as a country create the kind of separation of when automatically someone like Donald Trump coming to power. So regardless, you know, it could have been anybody else. But I, I think it's it's only 83 minutes long. It's not two hours long. Um, and I liked it for how clear-eyed and methodical it is, at least the, the first uh, two-thirds, before it gets a little bit angry about this particular man. And I think the only other thing I want to say, and I won't say anything more, um, is that it also very systematically makes the point about how a lot of the characteristics we are seeing right now are reminiscent of what happened pre-Mussolini, what happened pre-Stalin, what happened pre-Hitler. And again, very objectively, you know, not by jumping up and down. This is what they did to the press. This is what they did. So I think it kind of reminds people that, you know, on, from a very objective perspective, we are going down this path potentially. So I, I liked it for its clear-headedness. Everything Yazdi said, including the fact that I think it has really funny graphics. One of the things yes, I always I like that. in documentaries is the graphics and how they present the information. And they do this really innovatively. And they're really fun. I guess my worry, exactly what you said, Yazdi, is anyone who is not... Anyone who is a supporter of this president, unfortunately, will will not watch this, regardless of how they feel, right? They just won't watch this and they'll think it's just the liberal media, you know, on a, on a hate, on, a, on like a hate campaign for him. So that's the sad thing is that I think even though this is objective and, you know, presents its information really well and methodically, it's not going to be watched by the people who need to watch it. And it really is an infomercial for just 
telling us how worried we should be and that we shouldn't vote for this man. So I think it's it's a good effort, but I think it will fall on deaf ears because those of us who won't vote for him won't vote for him will not change our minds. And it's the same yeah. the other way unfortunately. But it's a good it's a good documentary. I mean, it's really well done. Yeah, and it's an easy watch. It's really it's efficient. Yeah. yeah, it's like watching like an extended sixty minutes in some ways. Mm-hmm. Therein lies the greatness of our culture, though. I mean, in the times of the, the to which you refer, the Stalins and the Mussolinis of this world, um, you know, any anyone speaking this way or even presenting this information uh, as as um, <laughs> publicly would have been disappeared into a gulag somewhere. So, well, for now. Yeah, exactly. For now. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. I uh, can, I, what what score? Go ahead, Yazdi. Yeah, I would I would give it a score of a seven and a half out of ten, um, and then maybe I'll back it up to seven. Um, I I I have to confess I, I'm I'm so angry during my waking hours as we lead up to the election about where this country, which is so beloved to me, that I grew up looking and loving and admiring and couldn't wait to be a part of that where we are at right now that I completely lack any sense of objectivity so for example so I just commend them that they are able to present something which is factual which is science-based which is objective and not bring in their personal feelings into it because I I would not be able to do it so I, I just commend them for that and like Rashmi said I think its biggest issue is that it'll always preach to the choir if there was somehow you could make um, his supporters watch it. I think at least it would be it would give them pause. But uh, so seven out of ten that I'm going to back down. But it's it's uh, it's pretty amazing what they have done in a very crisp way. It's a very crisp movie. Yeah, I, I give it the same score. Seven out of ten. Very efficient. It's entertaining, um, and it's a well made documentary. I think you know maybe it could have done a little bit better about being a little bit more objective. I mean, it's methodical. And it tries to be objective. It's difficult to be objective about this topic when a man is a ding-dong, right? I mean, there's not many ways you can be unobjective about it. Um, not the most but, objective language used there, yeah, but yes, I know, I, but I know what you're therein saying. Lies the, and, and, and therein that, lies the problem. Well, that's the yeah, challenge, for right? Me, for, me it was, for me, it was helpful because I, when somebody calls him a sociopath, for me, it's just one more fancy, smart word that you throw at somebody and you're not really sure what it means. But now I know that this man absolutely 100% meets the clinical definition Correct. of a sociopath. So I think I can be more, you know, after having seen this movie, I can be a little bit more uh, confident in saying, yes, this person behaves all signs of being a sociopath. Um, so anyway, yeah. Moving on. Moving Next on, movie yes. to talk about is Greyhound. Yes. So Greyhound is one of the premier prestige uh, films that are that is part of the Apple Plus uh, line of screening options that are available. And it's directed by um, Aaron uh, Schneider. And Aaron, I'm looking up on IMDb and he has uh, previously made a couple movies that are not known to me. Get Low um, is one movie and then there's something called Bums Rush. Um, but uh, Greyhound stars, uh, as I mentioned, it stars uh, the great uh, Tom Hanks. And the uh, one-line intro on IMDb is that several months into the U.S. entry into World War II, 
an inexperienced U.S. Navy commander must lead an allied, an allied convoy being stalked by a German submarine, Wolfpack. And uh, it stars uh, talks and Elizabeth Shue. We haven't seen Elizabeth Shue in a long, long, long time, as well as C.S. Forrester. And uh, the writers are Tom Hanks himself has a screenplay credit. I did not know that. And C.S. Forrester based on the novel, The Good Shepherd. So um, you guys both saw it. Uh, I, I'm going to have Apple, um, Apple TV access very soon. So I will definitely watch this. But uh, what do you guys think about Greyhound? Well, wait, wait. <laughs> well, just before we talk about the movie, uh, okay. what was interesting about this one is it was never meant to be an Apple TV Plus produced oh. movie. So this was supposed to be one of the movies that was going to come out in the summer of this year. But because of the pandemic, yeah. um, Sony, I think, decided to, to de-risk the situation and... Apple right now is trying to build a streaming service that's compelling and I think they're struggling for content. So they wrote a check um, to the tune of $70 million and bought the movie uh, and distributed it as an exclusive on Apple TV's uh, Plus service. So uh, another movie that I think would have benefited from being on the big screen because um, this is a war movie. It's set uh, in a very dark... Um, it's it's almost almost set at night it's you know they're they're a convoy of ships trying to escape from uh submarines in the middle of the atlantic and um it, it it's like i say i think it's a big screen movie with big sound with big production um you know i i felt very um sad in many ways to be seeing this in the in the home environment again you know i said this many times on the podcast but you know big movies deserve big screens and this is one of them um other than that i liked it i mean it's very efficient it felt like it told its story and then got out of dodge i mean it was straight into the meat of the situation with no extensive you know maybe there's a scene of tom hanks with his his wife just to kind of give you a little bit of character background but then but then we're at sea and then things start happening and then the night is over and then the movie's done. And so it was really nicely done from that perspective in terms of efficiency. It was also a very tense movie. I think that the movie does its best to create this kind of uh, sense of impo impo imposing danger. Um, you know, this is a convoy of ships and there are submarines in the area and, you know, the submarines do, and I don't know whether this is based on historical fact or not, but the submarines kind of have a wolf pack type mentality. Um, they played English uh, radio messages to <clears throat> the, the, the crews of these ships to put fear into them. And again, I don't know whether that was a movie trick or whether this is something that happened historically within war, but, um, you know, they, they certainly create this kind of um, predator and prey type uh, feeling. But... Um, Hanks is wonderful in this and you know this is the kind of role that he that's you know kind of like his Captain Phillips role it suits him down to the ground he is warm but firm he commands respect but um he's a very human person um and so yeah I I, I really enjoyed Greyhound um this is how I describe it meticulously boring 
Um, so it's very meticulous in the way that it's produced and put together. There's a lot of attention to detail, great sound production, the tension that comes from these submarines. But it's kind of boring because for me, it didn't feel like we... It's about being in the situation um, of of one night or it felt like one one long night. Yeah, I think technically Couple, it was three like nights. Three nights, but yeah. yeah. Um, but there's no emotional connection to any of the characters. Um, there's no real story other than how these men on a ship, on a battleship, are helping the fleet by managing these these submarines. And so, did you ever play play that game Battleships when you were yeah. younger? It felt like watching that played out as a movie. Um, in some ways, <laughs> I think that's a great point, right? So, yeah. so it's it's beautifully meticulous, but it's just boring overall. Mm. I'm kind of glad it was only an hour and a half because I was literally like, I can't watch any more of this. Not because it isn't good, but it didn't feel like it had a middle, a beginning, and an end. No, there's not a Other lot of story. Than, you know, it's not a, it's not a. But there's not a lot of story, and there's here. not really an arc. So it's just really. It could be a good stage play, to be honest. Hmm. So there's a lot of talking? Yes. Yeah, it's like something on the radar, something on the radar, something on the radar, something on the radar. The captain says, oh, what's on the radar? What's on the radar? What's on the radar? And then it goes, so you have kind of just instructions coming from where these submarines are being seen, going all the way up on this ship and then all the way down. And so mm. it's just a lot of maneuvers. It's almost like you're watching maneuvers mm. in and, battle. And that, that's fair. I think that, that's, that was the intent. I don't know that that is a side effect of um, poor filmmaking. I think that's, that's exactly what they intended to do, was show us how communication worked on these destroyers. And, you know, this is a, during the World War II. Everything's very analog here, like the whole tracking of... Um, objects in the water. Sonar was Sonar, yeah. was very <clears throat> rudimentary technology then. So you know there there had to be compass and graphs. You know. Yeah, yeah, and you know, yeah. the, the, you know the basic premise of the movie is they're they're in the middle of the ocean and they are out of air um, air support, support air support yeah. range, and so you know these ships have to fend for themselves. And there's a three day window between coasts where they, you know, when, when submarines are very easily dispatched by a plane that can spot them from the air and, you know, drop bombs. But when you're outside of the air support range, um, you know, you become very vulnerable because this is when they become the super predators that they are. Um, you, you can't see them coming. They shoot ordnance that you can't hear coming and, and they can sink ships. So, but it was, it was, it was very I agree with you, Rashmi. I mean, it was a very matter-of-fact, almost documentary, dramatized documentary. Yeah, of, of it would moment. be perfect on History Channel. Mm. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I'll, I'll wrap it up. I mean, I, this is a good movie, not a great movie. I think it would have scored at least an additional point had we seen it in a big screen. Um, you know, Rashmi, I think you perhaps had difficulty connecting with it because we were in the home environment and this isn't your kind of thing and when it's not your kind of thing but you're in a movie theater and you're forced to concentrate it 
you can get a little bit more out of a movie than one that on the face of it. It's a very masculine movie. I mean, it really is. There are no Elizabeth Shoe pops in here and there, but in flashbacks, but she's she's not a main character. So um, I'm going to give it a six out of ten. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Um, it's not it's not a memorable war movie, but um, yeah, an enjoyable watch. Yeah, it's certainly nothing when you compare it to something like 1917 or even like Dunkirk, which I didn't mm-hmm. love, but I could appreciate the magnificence of Dunkirk. So I, I think for me, it's average, five out of ten. Wow, okay. The best scene, I'll tell you this, the best scene for me was when Tom Hanks has been on his feet all day and he goes to put on some slippers and his feet are bleeding. Oh, okay. Because it showed something of the character of that man. Sure. To, you know, withstand being on his feet all day to the point where his feet would bleed. Other than that, there's not much that you can hang on to emotionally or connect with. Mm. That's disappointing. Okay. Yeah. Next movie on our list is 13th. So. Yeah, so I can I can quickly go over 13. 13 is a movie which is directed by Ava DuVernay, and it actually came out, I don't know, between six to nine months earlier. It's on Netflix, and it's gotten a recharge of will, if you will, um, because of the whole social unrest um, that is going on in the country right now. And a lot of people on social media were saying, required viewing and I'd never caught it. So I went ahead and watched it on Netflix. Uh, it's a short documentary and uh, the the name 13th comes from the fact that uh, the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery. And even though that particular amendment was intended to, to you know, right or wrong, uh, unfortunately, the wording in the 19th Amendment says that, you know, no person, you know, uh, can be held as a slave uh, or treated as one unless that person has been arrested for committing a crime. So uh, the documentary makes the point about how that latter part of the wording in the amendment allows police essentially to um, arrest people of color from relative for relatively minor infractions, um, and thereby and thereby their point is that. There, we do have a form of slavery right now. It just works in the form of institutionalized, this whole institutional police structure right now. And and the, the statistics are pretty horrifying that the U.S. right now has, you know, a third, a third of all the prisoners in the world. And it didn't even used to be like that up until 20 years ago. And that, that you know, from the period like Reagan onwards, we have just been on this exponential growth where we have just been literally doubling the number of our prisoners. And it came from, you know, this law and order kind of uh, political platform that Reagan came on and that you see right now, you know, his, his, his footprint or his fingerprint can be seen in Trump as well. The fact that so much of the country's um, dollar right now, which is too which is towards social causes right now, is just going and building more prisons and taking care of paying outrageous amounts of money to vendors who are running these prisons when a lot of the money might have been used for social reform programs that have prevented people getting into the prison in the first place. So I don't want to sound like a school teacher, but um, I really liked uh, 
how it very systematically, by pro again, by providing facts, kind of walks you through. It starts from slavery and it walks all the way through where we are right now in 2020 in terms of this whole, you know, prison industrial complex that is in the U.S. Um, and the other thing which I really liked is Ava DuVernay has filmed this. And the way the talking heads are filmed, the camera is not static. And it really moves around that person. I guess if I'm a person speaking to the camera, it would be very distracting. But as a person who's watching the documentary, I found it it was very engaging because it, it didn't feel like I was just speaking with somebody far away. You know, the camera was moving around. It gave me a sense of, um, you know, of being there with that person. So I, I think it's 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 a pretty pretty good watching right now. It's a short documentary. Yeah, yes, it actually came out in 2016, believe it or not. Goodness. But wow. I think it kind of gained momentum this year with exactly like you said, with the, with all of the Black Lives Matter and um, kind right. of, you know, bringing to a head racial injustice. Look, I think this was a, a great documentary. I don't think I watched it in 2016. I think I only watched it this year, actually. Um, and I like, it's got a a great set of talking heads. It's all through talking heads. Again, I think it's got really smart graphics and the way that it presents the information mm -hmm. and it brings you along. So I, certainly for, for us who didn't grow up in, in the US, it was a great way of understanding why things are coming to a head now and what led us here um, and, and why, why the, the justice system is such a... Um, it's so stacked against the African-American yeah. community. I mean, so that's, it's very, very smart in the way that it delivers its message. Yes. That was really an eye-opener for me because I didn't know that, say, I'm arrested for having marijuana, right? I get, you know, I get arrested and I go there. And what happens is that right now the criminal system will tell them, you know, just admit that you're you're guilty and you'll get away in six months or nine months. And most people don't realize that they have the option of saying no i'm not good i'm not going to deal with it they scare them by saying well but if you go through a trial and if you if you lose then you're going to be in jail for 3 years you know 6 months versus 3 years but people fail to understand the minute you admit to a crime you're a felon for life you cannot vote you cannot get a job when you get out so everything gets stacked completely against you for admitting to doing something that you haven't even done, potentially. So it's a really unfair system, and it kind of makes the point how people of color are just, they are at a disadvantage the minute they become, you don't have an advocate. The minute you go to prison, you know, everything's downhill from there. Yeah, so great I documentary. Think a good, good, good thing for people to watch. Yeah, so definitely watch this one. I think it's very timely. Yeah. Yeah, and available on Netflix. Yes. It got a 97% when it, Originally reviewed on the tomato meter. Yeah, I think yeah, it's really think, good. Yeah. Very good. Okay, a couple of other things that we've been watching. Um, as I guess we should kind of wrap things up efficiently. We've been blabbing away here for uh, over an hour. Um, but little fires everywhere, Yazdi. I think you mentioned this on a previous podcast, but um, you wanted to talk about it today. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to bring it up because it's like a prestige uh, television movie. And I really commend, I used to commend uh, George Clooney for being the kind of person
Martin, who got tired of uh, not getting the kind of roles he wanted, so he formed his own production company, movies and scripts and so forth. And Reese Witherspoon has been doing that a lot, where she's an avid reader and the books she likes, she just options them and she goes to different platforms, you know, Netflix and Hulu and HBO. And now, you know, so she, this is a very beloved book, uh, Little Fires Anywhere. It's a book by Celeste. And um, it really, more than anything else, it gives... Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington and Joshua Jackson, a lot of actors, and show what they can do. It's really a, a, a masterclass in these brilliant actors. It's eight hours of, it's eight episodes um, of one hour each. So it's eight hours of television, which on the face of it seems like a lot. But this book, um, I think. And and I and I'll try not to ramble. Maybe it's too late, but I will say this much: that it made me realize how good of a writer that is for the book, because this book has about eight or nine characters, um, and it 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 talks about them in the past as well as in the present. What happened? How they came to be? What they met? And it is all these themes of themes of racial inequality and you know suburban dominance um, about how we treat. Um, people of different uh, upbringing. It's, it's, there's everything but the kitchen sink. And, and the, when you read the book, the book totally la you know, lands you know, a clean landing. But by the time the episode eight comes along, just this, I, I think it would have served them well to kind of just cut down on some of the side plots, side characters, because the, the show literally crumbles under the weight of everything it's trying to say about everything in the world. I know the book did it and did it with aplomb, but they are not able to keep that. And it, and it, it just becomes unclear what the story is about. Is it about, you know, if it, the whole theme of the thing is if, if you have, if you're a surrogate parent and if you decide to have a baby and if you change your mind afterwards, whose baby does it belong to? Is it the person, you know, who... Who, who gave birth to the baby or is it the person who has now taken your baby and brought the baby, you know, grown that baby, sired the baby as their own. So there's so much stuff going on here that I think, you know, it was a little bit misjudged, but I think just Reese Witherspoon, if anybody doubts how good of an actor she is, she takes the bad guy role here and just runs with it. And Kerry Washington as well. Just and so had you read the book, Yasdi? I had a long time ago. Well, okay. not like two or three years ago. Yeah. Okay. And it yeah. is interesting. I think Reese Witherspoon is doing a lot of TV and she's pretty diverse from, you know, Big Little Lies to the morning show now to Little Fires Everywhere. And I think she actually plays the bad guy better than the good guy. Yeah. There's like a real good mean streak in her. Yeah. 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 Okay. Shockingly. I look forward to binge watching that one then, Yazdi. Yeah, I would definitely one recommend. Binge watch. I am the binge watcher in the family, <laughs> so yeah. And you know, sorry, sorry to hesitate, but when we watched, um, what was the one about um, the Indian girl that we watched um, recently on Netflix? Uh, ha never have I ever. Never have I ever. So remember, never have I ever is about this girl. But there was one episode which was about this guy, her boyfriend, not her boyfriend, the other guy who was competing with her, it just it just kind of changed focus and for one episode it became about him. Little Fires Everywhere does this thing where for one episode the movie just moves back. I mean, the, the serial just moves back 30 years and it visits all of those characters 30 years ago and it is so smart. 
So there's a lot of things going on here, but um, noble effort. Too much, though. Okay. And then there's one other movie I saw, which is actually right now the number one movie on Netflix, which is uh, Charlie Kaufman's latest movie. I'm thinking of ending things. I have a lot to say about this, so maybe we'll just hold off till another podcast. Yeah, and we want to watch that one too, so we'll come yeah. back for that one. Okay. Yeah, talk to me before you watch it, though. Okay. <laughs> I have something to say. Okay. To you, yes, to you both, yes. Next up is Killing Eve. So, Rashmi, yeah, you've so been making good use of our Hulu I have, subscription. I have. So, while Yazdi's been binge-watching Little Fires Everywhere, I have been binge-watching um, Killing Eve, and I got this on the recommendation of um, at least two people in a space of about a week. So I thought, oh, I should watch this. And it's set in London and it's all set in Europe and we're quarantined. So it was a nice way to escape um, our home for a few hours. So this is basically about a assassin. Let's call her an assassin. Um, and then a kind of CIA MI6 agent played by Sandra O. Oh. Um, and it's kind of that cat and mouse. And this is just, it's funny and it's dark. And it's got uh, Phoebe Waller-Smith, who does Fleabag, has a lot to do with this. Um, she's although she's not in it. But but you can see her humor all over this. Um, it's, it's deliciously, darkly, sickly, comically morose and scary. It's like one of those horror movies that you like giggle at because you're so scared at times. So it's been cleaning up at the Emmys and the Golden Globes. It's and, you know, so good. Sandra it's so Owen, good. Jodie Comer, I think. That's yes, she is amazing. So, okay, so what you said makes me want to watch it because I thought it was one of these dark, dark, nasty, gruesome kind of crime thriller thing. But you're saying there's a lot of dark humor. I can, If there's dark humor, I can watch it. The comedy is fantastic because... Um, <laughs> It's like a funny version of Dexter in some ways. Oh, okay. Okay. It's not funny. It's not like, oh, not that's the best comedy I've funny. seen, but it's like darkly humorous. And Joe, you've and been in and out since I've had it on all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's a good job we got married years ago because these days I'm something of a commitment phobe when it comes to <laughs> taking new things <laughs> on. And, um, you know... Binge watching TV series is something that fits into that category, even though one would argue with quarantine, we've got a lot of time at home. I, I hate getting drawn into things that are then going to eat 8, 12 or, you know, 16, 20 hours of my time. Um, so I resist unless the subject matter is or, or the, 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 the thing is, is very compelling to me. But nonetheless... Um, yeah, Rashmi started watching this and, um, you know, doing what I do, which is kind of casually kind of wandering in while it's not, you know, just after it started so that I'm not truly invested, but watching with one eye open. This one has been pretty seductive, I'll, I'll admit. Um, the, 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 the two lead characters, Sandra Oh and what's her name? Jodie Colmar. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, just, they're just an absolute hoot to watch. Rashmi says, you know, it's... It, I, I I do find this to be a dark comedy more than um, a thriller. So yes, it has thriller moments, but the the thing that you know comes across to me in every scene is just how darkly comical the whole thing is, and uh, it's fun. It's it's it really has a good sense of fun. The writing and the dialogue is is sharp, and the 
the assassin, the the Jodie Comer character. Villanelle. Villanelle is possibly one of the most interesting and fun characters that I can recall in television for like forever. She's she's just a, a scene stealer. She's a delight to watch. Even when she's doing the most heinous things, uh, she's she's lovable and and it almost tries to put a an absurdly comical spotlight on psychopathy. <laughs> so she's as evil and despicable as a Hannibal Lecter character. Yes. She's scarier than a Hannibal Lecter character, <laughs> and then she can have you belly laughing at something that she says in the next moment. So really, really fun character. You can see the actor has had a riot playing with the character and developing mm. it, but she's done such a good job. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's wonderful. So yeah, I like this one. I mean, I do, I, I, I might, you know, when, when we get back into a world when we can travel, I can see myself loading an iPad yeah. with, with like several episodes of this yeah. to while away the time because it's, it's, it's just so engaging and fun. Yeah. Hmm. Good. Yeah. Good Watch it, Yazdi. I think he'll really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, put it on my list. Yeah. Final thing we need to talk about before we wrap up today is Away. So this is a um, a Netflix streaming uh, series. We got early access to it uh, via um, via Netflix. So. Um, Yazdi, I'm not sure if you're ready to intro this one. I'll give you a quick intro uh, if I can. It's uh, It has Hilary Swank as its kind of known name. The basic premise here is that an American astronaut, Emma Green, played by Hilary Swank, prepares to lead an international crew on the first mission to Mars. She must first reconcile her decision to leave behind her husband and teenage daughter when they need her the most. So, um, you know, it's set... I guess in the not too distancy future when we have a moon base as a culture, we have a place from which we can launch a, a manned mission to Mars. Uh, it doesn't quite tell us when it is uh, set, but um, Rashmi, I know you watched a few episodes of this. What did you think? Yeah, I haven't got through the whole thing, so that should tell you something. It doesn't feel very bingeable at the moment, and that may just be because I've got other things that, are taking my time up like Killing Eve. Um, I think it's well produced. I'm not a great fan of Hilary Swank overall. Um, she's not one of my favorite act actresses. I love Josh Charles though. So mm -hmm. I like this interplay of the fact that both of them are astronauts, but the husband, Josh Charles, has an accident and can't ever make, make it to Mars. And so she de facto becomes the parent who goes to Mars. So there's this kind of dynamic of, you know, leaving your loved ones behind and how far away you are. And um, let's just say I'm not hooked yet. But I'm interested. And I watched um, the first episode or two of this as well. Um, I mean, here's what I'll say. I mean, I, th I think I admire what it's trying to do. I think it's trying to do, um, and you're going to laugh at me for this reference, but, you know, the, the interstellar thing where, you know, somebody has to make a choice to go very far away from their family for essentially the greater good, right? And and let's this is, end where we began. I know, right? <laughs> palindrome of the podcast. That's right. Um, but it 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 reminds me of why you know these type of things don't necessarily work well when you when you compare 
the family and there are some very you know difficult emotional things happening within the family right so um when you try and pair that with the seriousness of what would be you know a multi-trillion dollar space mission and then you try and give the character certain dilemmas based on her family situation and the seriousness of the mission she has to to go on you know you, you very quickly realize that this premise doesn't hold together because the kind of person that would undertake a risky mission like this would have already made many of the decisions that they're asking mm. this character to make in the show. So I, I couldn't buy the the plausibility of the scenarios because, again, I think any anyone that's about to blast off on a mission to Mars um, would already have had, in my mind at least, um, certain uh, emotional decisions made right you 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 know it's like it's like saying you know if i'm if i'm going to be the first manned spaceship to mars and and you know my cat gets ill you know am i going to cancel the mission well you know well i would be emotionally devastated if anything happened to our cat but would i cancel the first manned mission to mars i I don't know that would be the right thing to do so it's trying to give us those kind of um scenarios and it doesn't quite pull it off for me in the first couple of episodes i can see where it's trying to tug on the heartstrings and honestly i find it a little bit offensive in that they cast the most mom type character in this role to give her because again i think it's stereotyping hillary swank has that tv mom air about her when you know like the jennifer garner type yeah i was just but i mean i don't know that she always has that but They've given, they've bestowed that upon this character in this show. And so, mm. you know, you can almost see her driving her minivan to the launch pad. I mean, it's it's that kind of cliche. So <laughs> it doesn't work for me, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you know, doesn't doesn't work for me. I, I, I will watch the rest of it when Rashmi watches it, though, because I am intrigued enough about the story to, to, to follow it through. So there we go. Lots to watch. So much to watch, yes. Just as well as a global pandemic to keep us inside and watching it. Ugh. <laughs> All right. So um, I guess we've we've thank you if you are still listening. We we appreciate you. Hopefully we've um, been fun enough to hang out with to this far in the podcast. So um, let us know what you think of these longer episodes. Um, we always debate whether or not to talk this long or whether to splice things up into multiple shorter bite-sized episodes um, be great to hear if uh, anyone has any thoughts on that but um, until our next podcast which hopefully won't be a month away mind you, it takes um, probably takes a month to listen to it <laughs> probably right too many movies too little time goodbye for me and me and me as well <laughs> <laughs>